<clears throat> For our time then, this evening, let us return to Luke's Gospel, chapter 18. We want to focus upon these verses we find in 18 to 23 of Luke's Gospel, chapter 18. So our text then will be found in Luke 18 at verses 18 to 23, where we have this young man who came and presented Jesus with a very important question. The title I want to give to our meditation tonight is Loved But Lost. Loved But Lost. We remind ourselves again that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. And of course we are familiar of what awaited him at Jerusalem. It was Gethsemane and it was Golgotha. But he was making his way. And as he made his way he encountered one or two individuals. And here is one of them. And we want to look at this incident tonight. And we would rely upon the Lord to help us in our meditation that it might be profitable for us all. Here we have then, firstly, a promising young man. A promising young man. And we will be drawing from other gospel records in order that we might be able to paint a fuller picture of the whole incident because Matthew and Mark also record this incident and they add bits to it that help us obtain a fuller and more accurate picture. And therefore, first of all, we have a pro promising young man. And Matthew begins his account by saying in Matthew chapter 19 verse 16, and behold, and behold. Here the Holy Spirit is telling us, here, look at this, and behold. Here is something unusual. Here is something remarkable. Here we truly have a promising young man. And the Holy Spirit is directing our attention that we might look at this incident and that we might learn something from it. This is notable. And we know from other gospel records that he was a ruler. More than likely he was a, a synagogue ruler. A young man being a synagogue ruler. Or even he might have been a member of the Sanhedrin. We also know that he was rich. And he would be so unlike many other young people of his day. A young person who was rich would not be the everyday experience of many of them. We also find in Mark's Gospel about this incident, there came one running and kneeled to him. How unusual for a young person to come running to the Lord Jesus Christ. A young ruler, a young religious individual coming running to the Lord Jesus Christ. And more than that, he comes and he kneels before Christ. 
What member of the Sanhedrin or what ruler would kneel before the Lord Jesus Christ? What do we notice then about this promising young man? Here we notice, first of all, surely a sense of urgency. A sense of urgency. He comes running to Christ. He didn't know that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem ultimately to suffer and die. He wasn't aware of that. But he had a pressing concern. He was concerned about something and he comes running to the Lord Jesus. His problem wasn't about his money. His problem wasn't about his possessions. His problem wasn't about his, his health or any other earthly matter. He had something far, far more pressing. And therefore he comes with a sense of urgency. And I put it to you friends, this is something that we can emulate. This is something that we can take on board. We need to be urgent about this matter. Too many of us are sitting by and we're waiting for something to happen to us. Well, friends, everything has happened. The Lord Jesus Christ has come. God has sent forth his Son. He has done wonderful things in the gospel. He has provided a full and complete salvation for all who will come to him. And we are urged to come in the gospel. The Lord Jesus says to us, come. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. And we need this sense of urgency. I'm not going to repeat what I said on, on Wednesday night. But this is a fact. This is something that we see. This is something that the, the scriptures impress upon us. There's a vital matter before us. What is it? It's heaven. Or it's hell. Now you might say, oh the preacher, you're far too stark. That is the way it is, friends. That's the way it's going to be. We're going to stand before Jesus Christ one day. We're going to give an account. The books, we're told, will be opened. What will that mean? It simply means that your mind will be opened, your memory will be opened, your conscience will be opened, everything about you will be exposed, and you'll stand before the Lord Jesus Christ one day. And how will you fear? This man, with all his faults and all his failings, he had a sense of urgency. And there's some young people who have no sense of urgency. They're saying to themselves, well, the, you know the minister, well, he's a bit over the top. He doesn't realize I've got all my life in front of me. Well, we, we hope you do have all your life in front of you, but you don't know for how long. You don't know these things. Life, even at its longest, what is it? James would remind us it is a vapor. A vapor. A person who lives a hundred years or a person who lives a hundred and twenty years. What is life in comparison to eternity? What are a few years but a few days? What is it in comparison to eternity? How much time have you got? We don't know. You might go to bed tonight. You might not wake up in this world tomorrow. Oh, that's a terrible thing to say. Is it? Is it? It's the reality, friends. 
And this young man came with a sense of urgency to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are to adopt that urgency. And I appeal unto you, unbeliever, that you must indeed know something of this in urgency. You are to take the kingdom of God by violence. You are to seek to press in. You are to seek to close in with Christ. Now, does the Bible not say to us and exhort us, Today is the day of salvation. You know we say this in the streets and how true it is. God says to you today. The devil says tomorrow and tomorrow never comes. Today is the day of salvation. Young person, old person, middle aged person. Is Christ your Lord and Savior? Can you say that today? If you cannot say that today, then you must go to Christ instantly. You must go with a sense of urgency and plead your cause before him. You must say, Lord, have mercy upon me. How can I be saved? What must I do? God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Oh, that we might adopt that prayer. Oh, that we might... Beat our breasts, as we noticed earlier on in that chapter. Oh, that we would be like the publican. He went with a sense of urgency. He didn't dilly-dally. He was careful. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Where is that urgency? But notice also, he came kneeling. Was there not a sense of reverence? How many would kneel before the Lord Jesus Christ at this time in the life of the Savior as he conducted his ministry? How many? Very, very few. And here was this young man and he cast aside his pride. He cast aside his good clothes and everything that he had. And he kneeled before the Lord Jesus because he, he had a sense of reverence. Where is the reverence we should have? Christian, where is the reverence that we should have for the Lord Jesus Christ? Oh, we can call him our friend, and we should. We can call him our elder brother, and we should. We should delight in the relationship that we have. But there should be reverence. He is the only begotten Son of God. He's the one who has come from heaven. And he's the one who has returned to heaven. And he's the one who is taking people to heaven. Give him the reverence that's due unto his name. The world will blaspheme him and the world will disdain him. And we will love him. And we will give him the reverence that's due unto that great and glorious and holy name. And at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow. Do you love that? Does that not fill you with love to think that one day every knee shall bow before him? This young man here then, a sense of urgency, a sense of reverence, humbleness, so promising. As a minister, and as a, I could say maybe for the members of the Kirk session, if we had a young man like this who came and asked that question of us, 
Would we not say, here's a man with potential, or a, a woman, of course, a young woman? Would we not say, oh, there's great hope here? That person is so unlike many other young people of their day and of their, of their time. There's something about them. He is so promising. But secondly, as the narrative develops, we have here a deluded young man. We notice the question, saying, Good Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? We're going to be charitable to this young ruler. And we always sort of take that position because when the Bible presents a character for us, we can often see ourselves in that character. And we see some things that commend him. He goes with a, a vitally important question. Eternal life. This, was, this is what was on his mind. And when we say a deluded young man, we don't mean he was completely deluded. There were some good things about him. He wasn't there to tempt the Lord Jesus. We know that on many occasions, people presented questions to Christ. And they really did, weren't concerned about the answer at all. They simply wanted to trap the Lord Jesus and to use his answer as ammunition to bring him down. This cannot be said about this promising young man. The question was real. It was on his heart. It was on his mind. This was something that was troubling him. You see, he knew he lacked something. The Bible tells us he had great possessions. He didn't lack for what the people of the world would have 2,000 years ago. He probably had a house. He probably had good clothes. He ate well. He had all the mod cons that that civilization could give him at that time. But as he surveyed everything, as he looked, there was one thing missing. One thing. He wasn't that happy. Oh, no, no doubt his possessions, his money, his power, his influence, the fact that he was a young man and his life was all before him, that would give him a certain amount of pleasure. But deep down in his heart, he knew he lacked something. And we would commend him for that because he is so unlike many people today. Many young people and many older people, many mid middle-aged people, they don't recognize their great need, but he did. And he went to the right person. Who else could he go to? Who else could he possibly ask the most important question that anyone can ask? 
He asked it of the Lord Jesus. He asked it of that one who came from heaven to seek and to save that which was lost. He hit the bull's eye, we would say. He went to the right individual. So there was much to commend him. He was concerned about his eternal destiny. I wonder how many people here, even in this building tonight, are truly concerned about their eternal welfare. How many listening are really concerned about their, where they will spend eternity? He was. We might say, friends, that the reply that Jesus gave was quite sharp. Jesus says in reply to his question, why callest thou me good? There is none good save one, that is God. Now this is not an easy one to interpret. There are different views. But to the Jews and to the teaching the Jews would have, there was only one who was good and that was God. This man would be brought up under that teaching. There's only one who is ultimately good, and that is God. And when Jesus replied the way he did, some would, be, would maintain, Why do you call me good when you don't recognize that I am God in the flesh? You don't really recognize or acknowledge who I am. And it is, some would say, somewhat of a rebuke to this individual. Why call us me good? Only God is good. And you don't recognize me to be God in the flesh. Well, that may be an interpretation. Another interpretation may well be, it could be a rebuke to the person himself. Because the person himself, as we will see, he thinks he is good. This is his own opinion of himself. He thinks he is good. And if you like, Jesus is addressing his situation. Why callest thou me good? None is good. You're not good. That's what he's saying to him. Others will say. It's difficult. I'll leave you to determine what you think yourself. But anyway, we notice that Jesus does begin to answer his question. And Jesus was penetrating. Thou knowest the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not kill. And so on. Jesus there is quoting the second table of the Ten Commandments. What is Jesus doing? Jesus is using the law in... Uh, evangelistic sense. He's using the law in the sense that it was given. Many people think that by obeying the law they, they can be saved. That they can be right with God. The law was never given for that purpose. The law is a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. And a proper understanding of the law of God would cause us to see that we have broken the law of God and we've never kept the law of God and we cannot ex expect to be saved by obeying the law of God. And the law of God 
properly understood and applied is to draw us and to lead us to the Lord Jesus Christ who alone fulfilled the law of God. And Jesus was using this then to expose his self-righteousness because the man had the audacity to say in verse 21 all these have I kept from my youth up. If he truly understood the law of God he should have said all these I have broken from my youth up. And we could add what about before your youth? What about your childhood? What about the sins you have committed there? This man was oblivious to the grace of God. We might say in modern parlance, he was oblivious to the ABCs of Christianity. He didn't realize what the gospel is all about. He thought it was do this, do that, and be saved and be right with God. But no one will be right with God by observing the law. It is impossible for us because of sin. Do we really realize this? Because there are people today who think that somehow by seeking to obey God's law that this will earn credit and points with Almighty God. He was truly deluded. And I fear that these people are with us, deluded. Do the best you can, and it will be all right. Obey the law of God, and it will be all right. Do this, and God will accept you. Jesus continues to penetrate. Now when Jesus hear, heard these things, he said unto him, Yet lackest thou one thing. Do you notice that? The one thing. Is this not the answer to his question? What must I do to have eternal life? What does it say? Good master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now Jesus has come to, the, to answer his very question. Yet lackest thou one thing. Here's the answer. Here's, the, here's what he's been searching for. And Jesus is about to deliver it. You can imagine his ears are all open. This is what I want to hear. Sell all that thou hast and distribute unto the poor and thou shalt have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. This is not what he expected. What did Jesus do here? Jesus revealed his sin. This man had broken the first commandment. What is the first commandment? 
Thou shalt have no other gods before me. This man, his God was his possessions. And when Jesus told him to part with his possessions, he wasn't prepared to do it. There he began to realize that God was not his God. He had another God or other gods. He was an idolater. And as you know, that if we break one of the commandments, we have broken them all. Therefore, he was a lawbreaker. He was guilty. He hadn't kept the commandments at all. And Jesus had exposed this deluded young man. Thirdly, what have we got here then? We have a, a lost young man. We notice in Luke's account that it does not actually say that he left. In verse 23, when he heard this, he was very sorrowful, for he was very rich. But the other gospel records tell us he went away grieved, Mark says. Matthew say, says he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Now here is where we might be somewhat controversial in our interpretation of what happened here. There are some people who believe that ultimately the rich young ruler here was saved. They notice that he went away sorrowful and that his sorrow was, was represented in repentance. And they would take the view that because he was sorrowful, it was godly sorrow and it led to repentance and therefore he was saved. And they will cite the fact that the Bible tells us that Jesus looked upon him and loved him. We find that in Mark's account. In Mark chapter 10 verse 21 after the man was sorrowful, Jesus, beholding him, loved him and said unto him, One thing thou lackest. And those who ultimately believe that this man here was saved cling to the fact that the Bible does say, Jesus, beholding him, loved him. Here was Jesus standing before him, looking him straight in the face, eyeball to eyeball. And this man could see that Jesus was sincere. Jesus spoke to him, told him the truth, and as he told the truth, he loved him, we're told. And the word used for love there is agopeo. Agopeo. And it comes from the Greek word, word agape. And that's the word that's used for divine love. The highest form of love that you can have. And that's the love that the Lord Jesus Christ showed, displayed to this rich young ruler who would not accept what the Lord Jesus Christ said to him. Yet Christ loved him. 
And therefore people say that this man ultimately was saved. We disagree. We don't believe he was saved. We do believe, obviously, that Jesus loved him. But that did not result in his salvation. I think the very tone of what we read here would indicate that this man left sorrowful because he was not prepared to part with his gods. He was not prepared to follow the Lord Jesus Christ on these terms. He was not prepared to sell his possessions and goods and give them to the poor and then take up the cross and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. It was too high a price for him to pay. He wasn't prepared. And what he found out that day was that he did, didn't really want eternal life at all. It was freely offered to him in the gospel, but he didn't really want it. He wanted to hold on to his possessions. And he learned this, that his possessions were more important to him than eternal life itself. Now Jesus did love him. And we might struggle with this. Are we going to say then that one that Jesus loved is in hell today? We are. We are because Jesus is our Savior. And in order for Jesus to save anyone, the Lord Jesus Christ had to fulfill the moral law. How did he sum up the moral law? Thou shalt love thine the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. And thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And therefore, in order for Jesus to fulfill the moral law, and for us to have a gospel and a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ had to love this man. And we say this with reverence, and we say this with respect. And we say this with a sense of mystery. The Lord Jesus Christ loved Judas. Judas who betrayed him. And if he did not love Judas, we have no gospel. Because our gospel is that Jesus Christ has fulfilled, completely fulfilled, the law of God. Yes, he paid the penalty of our sins. Yes, he did. But he also fulfilled the moral law. And the moral law required Christ to love the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, mind and strength. And he did that. But the moral law also requires that he would love his neighbor. And on this occasion, this man was his neighbor. And he had to love him. And he did love him. The scriptures tell us Jesus, beholding him, loved him. It is a mystery for us, friends. We conclude, we notice is it surprising that we find mysterious things in God's Word? Is it a surprise to us that we find the Lord Jesus Christ the most complex individual that ever lived? Mysterious? Can we fathom 
the Son of God? With his divine nature and his human nature, one person? Can you comprehend it? Are we not going to find things in the Word of God concerning this glorious person that will humble us? Jesus, beholding him, loved him. Yet he went away sorrowful. And he went away, we believe, to a lost eternity. This is challenging, friends. The gospel, the everlasting gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is being proclaimed to you on this occasion and on many other occasions you've heard many others you're not ignorant and in one real sense friends I don't wish anyone to misunderstand me but the preacher can truly say in a in a guarded sense that Jesus Christ loves you And he bids you in the gospel to come unto him. And he bids you now to come unto him. And the promise of the gospel is that whatever your sins are, they shall be forgiven. You shall have the gift of eternal life. Your sins shall be forgiven. You will be justified by faith. You will be able to stand before God righteous. A hell-deserving sinner, righteous in the sight of God because of the Lord Jesus Christ who has displayed his love in the cross. But if you will not come, you will perish. He was loved, but lost. Friends, let us not dilly-dally. Let us not tamper. Let us not think light of these things. Let us be earnest. Let us be serious. Let us go to the Lord Jesus Christ. And let us, if there's a connection between the previous verses that we didn't meditate upon, it's this connection that we are to receive the kingdom of God as a little child. And this is what he didn't do. The Lord Jesus Christ opened up to him the kingdom of God. This is how you're to be saved. This is how you are to have eternal life. And if he was like a little child, he would have received it. But he didn't. He was loved, but lost.